Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I hope I could sing today. Um, I hope I helped. And um, I won't be singing this sermon, um, though that's a, that's, a, that's a choice, isn't it, to do an operatic-style sermon, but I, I shan't this morning. I shan't test it out. Well, for those who are um, bulletin readers, we'll notice that uh, the title isn't the same as the bulletin, but I hope that um, as we go through this morning that we'll see why I've stuck that one up there. We're going to be looking again as we follow through with Jesus, uh, the Kingdom, People and Purpose series. We've been going through Luke and we find um, we've been uh, approaching Jerusalem and we'll pick it up shortly. Well, the term world can mean uh, various things. It works on different levels. We can talk about the world in its broadest sense, as in creation. We can think of the world as all of creation. We can think of the world in terms of humanity. Okay, not everything in creation, but the world of humans. We can talk of the world as in the affairs of the world, the different nations, different countries, different peoples. And we can talk about the world in the narrowest sense, when we think about ourselves, our own world, the one that we can control and the one which we directly experience. In a, in a sort of way, you can actually call these kingdoms the world, the, crea- uh, the, the, the created kingdom. And we can have our own kingdom, which we are our kings. And this is somewhat where we'll be taking with uh, this morning. It's God's world, not ours. Okay, we have been in recent weeks through Luke. Last week he actually got into Jericho. The previous week he was just before. But now we find himself not only entering into Jerusalem, he has found himself right at the heart of Jewish political and spiritual life. This is a journey which has gone from chapter 9 and is taking us to chapter 20, where Jesus returns to the home, to the heart of the Jewish nation. And not only to the heart of the Jewish nation, but he goes straight into the temple. He doesn't do a tourist look around and just have a scope of what's going on in the city. No, he goes straight to his father's house. Now, this was a place where people could come and worship, where people could come and commune with God in prayer. And this was all done through the mediation of the priests and the scribes. The only thing is, is that Jesus found that this link between God obstructed. It's not in our verses, but just before, um, before our reading, we find Jesus overturning the tables of the moneylenders in the temple. He was livid that this had got in the way of true worship of God in his kingdom. You see, instead of communion, you had corruption. Instead of prayer, you had piracy. And this was ugly and abhorrent, and Jesus absolutely hated it. And he, seeked, he sought to overturn it. And you see, it's under the direction of the Jewish religious leadership that this sorry state of affairs has come about. And it's Jesus who's come to sort things out. You know, we'll see their struggle to hold on to their position of power and a failure to surrender to a higher authority. Have you ever been, or are you, particularly good at anything? You know, I'm not just saying just any particular thing, but 
a bit above everybody else. Maybe, um, maybe in your school days, you might have been the star football player. You might have been the star rugby player. It might be that you find you are the funny guy in the room that everybody likes to um, laugh and hang around with because he's going to obviously crack a funny now and then. Or what about the clever one? I can, I can identify with this one. You know, the clever one which everybody wants in their quiz team. You know, that's great, isn't it? It's nice to feel that centre of attention and that importance. It may be that you've actually had a position of influence in your work and you've enjoyed being over people in your team, able to... Set, give them bad shifts if they um, get on your nerves. But what happens that when one day somebody comes into that world of yours and is better than you? You know, you're no longer that funny man which people want to go and, and uh, be with. You're not n- no longer the clever guy who, who's being called to the quiz team. You're no longer the boss but somebody has come in and superseded you. How does that make you feel? How does it feel of being gazumped, as it were? Well, it depends, really, doesn't it, on how much we value that popularity, power, and status that being that number one person gave us. And it certainly doesn't feel good when our place and significance in our own world is taken away. Well, that's exactly how the religious leaders were feeling at this time in first century Palestine. You know, they said, they, well, I can point to my birth certificate. I can point to you to my graduation certificate. It's nicely up on the wall. Now, this is how important I am. And whether it was their purity of their birthright or the qualification to teach people, they had their own claim on authority over the Jewish people, and they loved it. They loved the status that it brought them. But into the world, into their world, comes Jesus Christ. You know, he was a threat to their way of life that they loved so much. They were the elite. Yet they've just heard the cries of the crowds. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But I'm only a, I'm only a scribe. There's a king. A new man was in town and was challenging the status quo. Preaching with power that the scribes could only dream of. Overturning priestly rules and regulations by dining with sinners. He was turning their world upside down and they didn't like it one bit. And so they resolved to destroy him. And their power base was of two things. Their position and their popularity. But Jesus certainly had the popularity. He had the crowds with him. And this was a real issue for them. And so what they try to do is undermine his authority. And this is where we get our first point. Who made you king? That's exactly what they ask in these verses, in the first verses of 1 to um, 8. Who do you think you are? Who made you ruler over us? It wasn't an innocent question, but it was, mean to, it was deemed to undermine the authorities, you see. So you see the way they asked it. And they ask it as a question with, um, regardless of what the response will be. The response of, of, it was going to be of no consequence. They had already made their mind up about him and had closed their eyes to the evidence 
because the power and status were too precious to give up. You know, they knew the scriptures, but couldn't or wouldn't see Jesus for who he is and see them all the scriptures being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They had heard, maybe even seen the miracles, yet refused to admit the obvious answer. Jesus responds with a question which exposes their closed-mindedness and that blind refusal to concede to a higher authority. So concerned were they for their own world that what they... um, that what uh, they, oh, excuse me, and what that actually gave them, admitting the true identity of Jesus was just as bad as the threat of the people, both equally unattractive. Bow the knee or be stung to death. I know what I would do. The answer is obvious, but they opt for neither. They refuse to bow the knee. And so their attempt to manipulate the favor of the people against Jesus falls, falls back on them. It fails and leaves them without, without a real answer to who Jesus is. If you perceive Jesus as a threat to your world, then you really haven't understood who Jesus is at all. And here's the really frightening thing, is that you may, ne- may never get to know who Jesus really is. You see, Jesus refuses to reveal his true identity, his true divine origin, from where he gets his authority to those who don't want to hear. And it might be harder the higher up the ladder you are. The scribes and the Pharisees were were the cream of the crop. And these are the Jerusalem ones as well. They were the... They were the hit squad. They were, they were great. And so much power and authority. How much harder is that to submit to somebody greater than you? You see, this is why Jesus says that it's, it's how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Because with wealth and money comes control and power and more to relinquish to somebody higher up. Well, don't fall into the same trap. That's the warning here. Do not defend your own world in ignorance. Be open-minded so that Jesus may reveal to you who he really is. Consider his ministry and what what he did. Consider his words which are recorded for us in the Bible. And just look at the historical facts. These are all things that we should just be open to And know that Jesus will speak to us and reveal who he is if we don't go in with a closed mind. But is this denial or rejection of God sustainable? Can you keep it up? Can I have his cake and eat it? That is, can I enjoy all the blessings of this world and still remain a master of my own? Can I be the captain of my ship and yet at the same time reject the claim that God has over my life. The Jewish nation was to represent and demonstrate a world where God rules and reigns. It was to be a nation through which all the world and peoples were to be blessed. And yet those at the helm 
who had been entrusted to care for it, had sought their own welfare. And so we're going to look at the next few verses, verses 9 to 18, and we'll see the danger of playing God. Well, Jesus um, t- begins to tell them about a parable. Par- a parable. I said that last week, I think, if you go to the recording. A parable about the vineyard. Now, this was not going to be lost on the Jewish leaders of their time. They knew all about the imagery of Ju- uh, uh, the Jewish nation, the God's people, to be that vine which he was talking about. And so, immediately, they would have been uh, aware of what Jesus was saying. He talks of tenants, which are the leaders of the, uh, of the, uh, the nation of Israel. And he talks about these servants being sent one by one to that, those people. But we see one by one, they're rejected by the, by the person who, he's, who sent them. Well, these could be, most probably are the prophets that God has sent throughout history to that na- nation to warn them to turn back to God, to give to God what is rightfully his. Because God is the one who planted the vineyard. And he just asks that what is given back to him is what is due to the owner. It's nothing less and nothing more. See, he's entitled to it. It is him who prepared the ground. It is him who planted it. And it's him who grew it. But you see increasing hostility toward the claims of God on what he had created. And so he sends his beloved son. Maybe they'll pay attention to him. You know, there's much to say about this parable, but we don't have time this morning. But I just want to point out a few things. Because we could say that God is gracious and God is patient. He could have come as, as the owner to come and redeem what was his in the beginning. If the tenants are starting playing up, let's get rid of them straight away. No, but you can see the loving and graciousness and patience of God. But I want to point out the real reason. The real reason why they were rejecting those servants that he was sending. If you look at 14b, or the second half of verse 14. This is the heir. This is the heir. They said, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Now the real desire of them is wanting to be their own God. They wanted to command their ship. They wanted God's cake and eat it and reject the one who baked it. You see, this has a real historical fulfillment as well. They said, let's kill him. And we all know what happened on Good Friday. Or perhaps we find ourselves foul of killing Jesus. Maybe that we've put him there. That we put Jesus to death so I can enjoy the benefits of what my life is all to myself. Chris nicked my song. It's quite interesting because I was going to say it was my sin that held him there. Now by rejecting Jesus and saying that we are God, we don't want him, we want, I just want to control my own life. We're essentially putting him to death. That's sin. That is the root of all sin, is to reject God. And our sin is the reason why he went to the cross. It was our sin which held him there. You know, the following is a lesson to all of us. And to anyone who thinks that they can live a life in God's world without acknowledging him. Anyone who acts 
as if they're untouchable and behave in a way they want to in any way without impunity. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. They will lose their life and everything they had. That is the result of going your own way, being your own God and rejecting, uh, rejecting the true living God. And this was a real sting to those original hearers. You know, the horror of transferring the vineyard and all the blessings and promises that were given to the nation of Israel and give it to others. And those others could well be the apostles to lead, or it could be most likely that the Gentiles that they were giving it to. And to them that really stank. It was like King John Eel having to say, no more to North Korea, I'm giving power over to South Korea. It's just unthinkable. It's not right. It's not right. Well, a continual rejection of God is unsustainable. God will take away all that we have if we fail to give back to him what rightfully is his. May this never be, they cry. We're going to look briefly at two verses now which link um, the episode with the, the Caesar's coin. So verses 17 and 18. I want to say that this is Jesus, the last king standing. Now, who does he think he is? Who is he to rule over us? Well, look who's talking. You know, verse 17 and 18, Jesus lays down his supremacy and his divine sovereignty and dominion over Israel and all of the world in three short Old Testament quotes. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Well, firstly, he quotes from Psalm 118. And this was a psalm, no less, than a psalm to be sung going into into Jerusalem at Passover time. What a superb one to pick, Jesus. How wise is he? It's it's a song declaring the arrival of a king after a victory over his enemies. Now, Christ's claim to be the Redeemer King is as clear as day, as is the identification of the builders, the Jewish leaders of his day, the ones who rejected him. Well, this rejected king has become the capstone. And as the capstone is fundamental to holding the walls of a building together, so is Jesus fundamental to holding all things together. In Jesus, all that the temple represented, the temple of which he was preaching, was found, is to be found in Jesus. Access to God, true worship, a place of forgiveness, a center for a chosen people, a people belonging to God. This is the Jesus who is walking and talking in Jerusalem. And the other two Old Testament references are from Isaiah and Daniel. You need to have a look at these in your own time. Go away and have a look. These verses are brilliant, and I can't give them justice this morning. Isaiah 8, from Isaiah 8, says, Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That's the quote which he takes. And you see, if you 
If you happen to flick back, don't, ask, don't look now. But on verse 18 of that quote, it says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. And it goes on to say, But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. See what's happened there? The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He will be the stone. What did Christ say? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Not only will Jesus cause judgment to fall on Israel, Jesus shows that he is not only the king, but God himself. And by that authority, he will exact judgment. Who are you to rule over us? He is the Lord God Almighty. Daniel 2 is the next quote. But on whom it falls will be crushed. He's not only the king and God of Israel, but the world too. He quotes from a a dream which Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel's interpretation of it. And I'll read a few verses from there. So, uh, chapter 2, verse 44. And in the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar has was a dream of all the nations around the world, all those superpowers that opposed Jesus. But here he proposes the destruction of all other kingdoms that get in his way, that oppose his rule. You just need to take a look at history. Where are the great empires now? You know, Britain was, was uh, I think, known as the empire of which the sun never sets. So wide and great was the British Empire that wherever you are in the world, you could actually enjoy daylight if you said, I'm in the British Empire. So great it was. But look at it now. Look further back. The Assyrian Empire, which they all feared before Jesus' time. Where is that now? The Roman Empire, of which Jesus was stood in the midst of. Where is that now? We might have legacy of them, but I don't bow down to Caesar. Where is it? You may look at our current day. Now, where are those superpowers? Should we fear them? Absolutely not. I quoted North Korea. Not a superpower, but a dangerous power. What about Iran? There are many, many, many places and peoples and kingdoms in this world that we can fear. But these promises remain true. He will crush all these kingdoms that oppose him. And so this should be a source of great hope, shouldn't it? I, w- I sometimes fear when I look on telly and I see the movement of, of Russia and I see the sinister way that, well, the appearing sinister way of what's happening there and the might that they have. You know, as China and Russia get together and block things going in, uh, through the UN, I'm starting to sort of like worry a little bit. But my confidence is in Jesus Christ. He is the king. 
He is God Almighty who will rule forever and will crush anybody who stands in his way. The Jewish establishment, those leaders, know full well that Jesus had been talking about them. The parable was pretty thinly veiled by Jesus, and the message of 17 and 18 was just the cherry on the top. They're fuming at being humiliated in front of people, especially in the temple, their seat of power. This is where they work from, and this guy has come in. Who does he think he is? Well, no wonder, verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Well, their next attempt, their next attempt to trap Jesus has some irony about it. You know, they seek to get him delivered over to one of the greatest empires there's ever been. Yet an empire which he just foretold is going to be squished by him. Well, we learn from the next verses about giving back to God what is due to him. You know, the dealing of taxes to a foreign occupying um, occupation was a source of contention. There were some who thought it was a small price to pay so that they could um, be allowed to do temple worship and operate in some sort of uh, reduced way, but actually still be a a nation of sorts. But some thought it was um, uh, having allegiance with the Rome, with Rome, rather than God Himself. While refusing to pay taxes to Rome was tantamount to rejecting Roman rule, and was re- and was viewed as rebellion. And it's not hard to imagine what the punishment was. It was that crucifixion and agonizing death and punishment. And so, verse 20, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that he might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality. That's grim, isn't it? That's just bare-faced lies in front of Jesus. But teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right, therefore, for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, seeing as though they wanted a reason to hand him over to the governor, I believe they were hoping for the answer, no. And then they'll be able to go running off to the governor and say, do you know what Jesus said? But Jesus knew what they were trying to do and avoided their trap. Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and God, and to God what is God's. You see, Jesus is asking what the tenants from the parable failed to do. is to give back to God what was due to him. Well, what is God's? What, what are we supposed to give back to him? Well, as the inscription, an image on the coin itself, bears Caesar's name, so too do we bear the image of God. Just look at verse um, 26 of the first chapter of the Bible. We are made in the image of God. 
We are God's. We are his possession. You see, we are called to live in a response to our creator, God. We are to rule and manage his world. We are to give our lives in obedience to him. God created us to have a relationship with him and not to live as he wasn't there. We were made to give him glory. That's what God is. That's what's God's. We are his. His world is his. So how are we to live in this world? Well, Jesus said for them to give back to Caesar what is his. But he exhorts us to a more higher authority, a higher allegiance. And that's to our creator. And so we must live our lives first and foremost to God. Everything we do must be weighed up in light of this fact, in light of God's claim on our lives and our obedience to him. This is what is meant by giving ourselves to him. And it may be that we have to consider our stewardship. We had a look at this last week. Being good stewards of what he's entrusted with us. But maybe it's about defending our integrity. There may be times where our world comes into conflict with the world. As John rightly puts, that we, we're not of this world, but we're in it. And there are going to be times of tension. What does it mean to give back to God? Well, it means to be obedient to him. Christ reigns, and we need to um, rule under him. It may be that we face legislation. We we talk about it quite often. It's quite current. But legislation which, which seeks to reduce Christ's voice in the world. It may be that we have work pressure, which we're asked to do things that we know is not right. But also, it may be that that giving to God is proclaiming. We are to give God glory, to sing his praise. And we should do this without fear. You know, God is the God's kingdom. Uh, God's kingdom is the one which will last forever. Jesus Christ is almighty God. Who do you fear? Who do you love? Who do you want to give your lives to? Well, if you, by giving your life, you're proclaiming God's word. You're doing well. But you needn't fear anybody. See, it's God's world, not ours. He's shared it with us, his image bearers. So let's not abuse this privilege by living lives as though he didn't exist or matter. You know, let the knowledge and faith in Jesus, our eternal God and King, and the victory that he has won over all those who oppose him, give us confidence to live lives worthy of of a gracious and generous God as we give our lives to him. I will close, um, or we will close, um, with all that I am. It's a good response to say uh, of what we want to give to our creator. All that I am, after which we'll just stand as I conclude in prayer.